You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 72, The Siege of St. John. When we last looked in at the fighting around Fort Ticonderoga and Lake Champlain in Episodes 59 and 60, Colonel Benedict Arnold and Colonel Ethan Allen had captured the fort in May 1775. They then captured all of Lake Champlain as far north as St. John at the northern end of the lake in Canada. There, Arnold captured the British dockyard and commandeered the largest ship on the lake. He sailed it back to New York before British General Guy Carleton could get his regulars down to recapture St. Jean. Following that success, the politicians and armchair generals in Philadelphia, Cambridge, and New Haven sent a series of confusing and contradictory orders on what to do next. At one point, they ordered the Patriots to retreat return the fort to the British, and abandon Lake Champlain. They also sent bureaucrats to audit Arnold's expenses and a more junior colonel, Benjamin Hinman, to take command of the area with 1,000 Connecticut militia. Arnold ended up leaving in disgust and returning east to see about getting reimbursed for the personal money he spent to finance the successful campaign. Colonel Hinman held command of the region for most of the summer. Unlike Arnold or Allen, Hinman was content to sit around and simply occupy the region. He made little effort to improve defenses, to use the ships that Arnold had captured, or do much of anything else. He spent most of his time complaining that he did not have enough money, food, supplies, or other resources to do much of anything. Unlike Arnold, Hinman was not inclined to spend his own money or use his own credit to get things done and then hoped to be reimbursed later. If Hinman did not have the resources, nothing happened. In June, when Congress created the Continental Army, it appointed Philip Schuyler of New York to take charge of the New York area as one of the first major generals. Schuyler had no combat or command experience to speak of. During the French and Indian War, he had served as a quartermaster in the New York militia. At the outbreak of the Revolution, he held a colonelcy in the New York militia, but was mostly a politician. Schuyler had served for years in the New York Assembly, while living a comfortable life as a wealthy gentleman farmer in upstate New York. He also was a committed patriot, and was a New York delegate to the Continental Congress at the time he received his commission. His appointment may have more to do with the fact that Congress wanted to include a New Yorker among the military leadership, and they thought Schuyler was the best they had at hand. After receiving his commission in June, Schuyler headed out to Albany to take stock of things there. He finally arrived at Fort Ticonderoga on July 18th. 
what he found did not impress him. His first impression of the fort was finding a single guard who did not properly confront him and then left him alone while wandering off to find some other sleeping guards. Schuyler later commented that he could have taken down the guard and destroyed the blockhouse with a penknife had he been so inclined. The fort commander, Colonel Hinman, who had by this time received a commission in the Continental Army, had done nothing to train his soldiers, improve fort defenses, or even keep the camp clean. At the same time, Schuyler learned that the British, under General Carleton, were hard at work improving defenses at St. Jean and also building two new sloops with which to conduct raids or possibly an invasion. Schuyler set about whipping the army into shape and engaging the men in a shipbuilding effort. The Continentals built ten small gunboats, each capable of mounting one cannon and carrying about thirty men. These, along with the Enterprise and the Liberty, which were the ships Arnold had captured, would constitute his invasion fleet for an assault on St. Jean. General Schuyler, however, did not hang around all summer to oversee this project. He sent General Montgomery to Ticonderoga so that Schuyler could return to Albany. There, General Schuyler would negotiate to keep the Iroquois from joining the British in the upcoming fight, and he also had to deal with a host of other military matters since he was responsible for all of New York. So while Schuyler was not much of a combat officer, his pairing with Richard Montgomery helped to overcome that deficit. Montgomery came from a prominent family in Northern Ireland. His father, brother, and cousin had all served as officers in the British Army and in the Irish Parliament. When the Seven Years' War began, Montgomery's father bought him a commission as an ensign. In 1758, Ensign Montgomery led an assault force at Lewisburg, landing his men in ships under the fire from the French. Impressed with his action in battle, his commander gave him a field promotion to lieutenant. Montgomery participated in the successful British assault against the French at Ticonderoga a month later. He then participated in a series of combat missions, resulting in the capture of Montreal. After the fall of French Canada, Montgomery deployed to the Caribbean, where he saw even more combat. He returned to New York after the war, in time to play a role in Pontiac's rebellion. By this time promoted to captain, Montgomery returned to London after the war to recruit for his regiment. There, he hung out with radical Whigs like Isaac Barra and Edmund Burke. He also got engaged to a girl from a prominent British family. Then, in 1771, his life took an interesting turn. His fiancée had cheated on him and they broke off the marriage plans. He also got passed over for a promotion. Montgomery sold his commission and moved back to New York. There, he would become a gentleman farmer. He bought a farm a few miles north of New York City, and he also got reacquainted with a young girl named Janet Livingston, who came from the prominent New York Patriot Livingston family. The two soon married and settled down. Montgomery became a moderate patriot, serving in the New York Provincial Congress. Based on his military experience, the Continental Congress commissioned him among its first class of brigadier generals. Though it appears he accepted reluctantly, once he accepted, he threw his full effort into the job 
and began working with General Schuyler on plans to invade Canada from New York. In late August, Montgomery grew concerned that the British would soon launch the two ships that they were building at St. John and use them to attack Ticonderoga. Rather than wait for an attack, Montgomery took about a thousand men up Lake Champlain in his small makeshift fleet to attack the enemy. General Schuyler returned to Fort Ticonderoga a few days after Montgomery left, with 800 reinforcements and some field artillery. Schuyler rushed up the lake to catch up with Montgomery, leaving his reinforcements to make their way a few days later. They established a base of operations at Ile-aux-Nois, an island near the mouth of the Richelieu River, about 12 miles south of St. John. On September 6, about a thousand Continentals landed on shore just below St. John. Schuyler had been in command, but a fever and a bout of rheumatism forced him to turn over command to Montgomery. Although they hoped to surprise the British at St. John, Montgomery led his men into an ambush of about 100 Indians led by British officers. After a short firefight that left over a dozen dead or wounded on each side, the Indians withdrew back into St. John. Realizing that he had lost the element of surprise, Montgomery also withdrew back to his landing point. There, the Patriots received intelligence from a local that the British would be ready to launch one of its new ships, named the Royal Savage, within days, and that the British had also spent the last couple of months building up defenses at the fort. After a council of war, Generals Schuyler and Montgomery pulled their forces back to Ile-en-Nois and awaited the 800 reinforcements and artillery before resuming their planned assault. There, they built a blockade across the river to prevent the British from running their new ship past the Patriot forces and onto Lake Champlain. By September 10th, the reinforcements had arrived, and Montgomery prepared to lead a combined force of about 1,700 men against Fort St. Jean. Montgomery divided his force into two columns and launched a night raid. He hoped to hit the British defenders at night from two different directions. His inexperienced officers and men, though, were not capable of such a maneuver. The two columns ran into each other in the dark and began firing at one another. This alerted the British, who also began firing with grapeshot from their entrenched positions at the two columns. The confused and frightened Continentals fell back almost immediately and fled the field. General Montgomery planned another attack for the following day, but his troops refused. They feared that the Royal Savage would launch and get downriver before they could stop it. Montgomery thought this was simply an excuse to retreat out of fear. He attempted to rally the men. They would have none of it, though. Montgomery finally accepted that they would not attack. He later attempted to court-martial some of the soldiers for a refusal to obey orders. But they also refused to testify against one another, and the charges never stuck. After a few days at Illinois and no sign of the Royal Savage, Montgomery finally convinced his army to make another attempt on the fort. The British sent a scouting ship downriver and ran into the Patriot base camp. A lucky cannon shot sank the small British boat with all aboard. This helped raise the spirits for another attack. Terrible thunderstorms delayed the third attempt until September 16th. When the weather cleared, 
Schuyler was still too sick. He returned to Fort Ticonderoga and left Montgomery to lead the attack. The delay gave the British time to reinforce their position as well. British General Carleton only had about 600 regulars in all of Canada. During the two assaults, he had only about 200 regulars at Fort St. John, along with 100 Indians and a few artillery. After the first attacks, Carleton went all in to defend the fort. He sent almost all of his regulars, along with nearly 200 local militia, bringing the total number of defenders to about 750. He deployed another 83 regulars just north at Fort Chambly to cover a possible retreat. The commanding officer at Fort St. Jean was Major Charles Preston, who had once been General Montgomery's commanding officer in the regular army. Schuyler continued to send reinforcements for Montgomery, but illness had reduced his fit-for-duty force to about 1,400. Both sides had hoped to recruit more Canadians to their side, but the locals were reluctant to commit to either side. On September 18th, Montgomery deployed his main forces on the south side of the fort while sending a smaller force of 134 men under Major Gene Brown to the north to block any retreat or prevent any supplies from reaching the fort. Major Brown almost immediately discovered a supply train of eight wagons about to enter the fort and attacked. Inside the fort, Major Preston saw his supply train come under attack and deployed 200 regulars from the fort to attack the attackers. Brown's men began to flee, only to run into Montgomery. Montgomery was leading 500 soldiers toward the sound of the gunfire. Montgomery's force now took the offensive against the 200 regulars who had to retreat back to the fort. The British had to give up their wagons, but mostly escaped back to the safety of the fort. When Montgomery's men came within range of the fort, it opened up on them with artillery, forcing them to take cover. Montgomery's forces entrenched all around the fort. They had a larger force, but did not have enough artillery to take down the fort walls. Both sides settled into a waiting game. Major Preston hoped that General Carleton could raise more Canadians to form a relief force. Montgomery waited for Schuyler to find more cannons to send him to take down the fort walls. As the two sides settled into a siege, General Montgomery made use of the Green Mountain Boys, whom Schuyler had sent to the field to be of assistance. The boys were now under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Seth Warner, who had been Ethan Allen's second-in-command during the assault on Fort Ticonderoga. The boys had decided to ditch Allen for Warner after Allen's reckless assault on Fort St. Jean back in May that almost got them all killed or captured. Allen, however, remained with the group as a volunteer scout. On September 21st, three days into the siege, Montgomery deployed Warner and his men to move north and capture two outposts near Montreal, La Prairie and Langlois, about 25 miles north of Saint-Jean. From there, the Patriots could monitor and probably intercept any attempts to send reinforcements to Saint-Jean. Now, Allen had tagged along with the Green Mountain Boys, but at this point decided to act on his own. He somehow got it into his head that he could almost single-handedly capture Montreal and make himself once again the conquering hero. Allen collected about 110 volunteers. He appears to have felt confident that the local Canadians in Montreal 
would rise up and join his small force as soon as they began the assault. Allen also later claimed that he expected part of Warner's force under Major Brown to join him in the assault, although Brown later stated that he never had any idea of what Allen was planning. On the night of September 24th, Allen crossed the St. Lawrence River, landing just north of Montreal. Even though he only had 110 men, he had only a few canoes to make the crossing, which meant multiple crossings that took most of the night. Early the next morning, a force of about 40 British regulars, along with more than 400 Canadian militia and a few Indians, came after Allen's men. His volunteers almost immediately broke and ran, but with only a few canoes, only a small number were able to escape. Allen and about two dozen of his volunteers stood and fought against the nearly 500 attackers, who quickly overwhelmed them. Allen finally turned over his sword and surrendered. As soon as he handed over his sword to a British officer, an Indian attacked him. Allen grabbed the officer and used him as a human shield to fend off the Indian attack until some Canadians got the attacker under control. As a prominent prisoner of war, the British shipped Allen back to Britain, presumably for trial as a traitor. He spent most of the next year aboard prison ships. Fortunately for Allen, the Patriots had captured several prominent British officers by this time. They threatened that if the British executed Allen, the Americans would execute an officer of equal rank in retaliation. King George decreed that rather than try him for treason, he should be held as a prisoner of war. The British shipped Allen back to British-controlled America, where he spent another two years in captivity. Finally, in 1778, Allen would be traded for a British colonel. Although Allen was captured, Warner successfully held the outpost just outside Montreal. By October 1775, General Schuyler also succeeded in getting several cannons to Montgomery so that he could begin firing larger shells into Fort St. John. The Continentals were able to sink the Royal Savage even before it left port. Still, there were not enough Continentals to break the siege. While waiting out the siege in St. John, Montgomery deployed another force under James Livingston, a local farmer who happened to be a relative of Montgomery's wife, and who was able to raise several hundred Canadian militia in favor of the Patriots. Livingston acquired two cannon from the Patriots and floated them downriver to attack the 83-man British outpost at Fort Chambly. After a two-day bombardment, the British commander surrendered, most importantly, without destroying his munitions or supplies. The Patriots captured about 120 barrels of much-needed gunpowder, as well as a large supply of arms and food. By the end of November, British General Carleton had assembled a force of nearly 1,000 men, mostly militia from throughout Canada. He planned to crush Warner's outpost just outside Montreal, then move upriver to relieve the regulars at St. Jean. It did not go as planned, though. When the militia attacked Warner's outpost of less than 200 men on October 30th, they were met with cannon fire from artillery that Warner had taken from the captured Fort Chambly. Most of the Canadian militia broke and ran, leaving frustrated British officers to retreat from the field. There would be no relief force for St. Jean. In late October, Patriots also received another 500 reinforcements under General David Wooster. 
Although battle casualties were light during the siege, the Patriots had lost hundreds of men to illness over the two-month siege. On November 1st, Montgomery sent a British soldier under a flag of truce to speak with Major Preston and ask for his surrender. The soldier had been part of the relief force meant to relieve St. John. Suspecting a trick, Major Preston sent his captain and several other officers to meet with Montgomery. Montgomery allowed the British officers, who included a young lieutenant named John Andre, we may hear more from him later, to speak with several other prisoners from the relief force and convinced him that this was no trick. St. Jean would not be relieved. Finally convinced, on November 3rd, Preston surrendered Fort St. John. Over 500 regulars and another 100 militia became prisoners of war. With St. Jean captured, Carleton pulled back his few remaining soldiers, abandoning Montreal and retreating to Quebec. Montgomery marched into Montreal unopposed on November 13th. The Patriots also captured the British fleet in the river outside of Montreal. General Carleton was forced to don civilian clothes and pretend to be a French-Canadian in order to make his way through the enemy lines and return to Quebec. The Patriots celebrated the fall of Saint-Jean and Montreal as an important victory. Congress promoted General Montgomery to Major General, though, spoiler alert, he would die before he received news of his promotion. The capture of Montreal opened up a path for a direct assault on Quebec, which would mean the fall of British Canada. But we'll have to leave that for a future episode. Next week, as the Siege of Boston continues into the fall, the Continentals find a traitor among their ranks. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, and welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Now, before I get to this week's recommendation, I want to remind everyone to check out my blog, which is at blog.amrevpodcast.com. It provides free transcripts of each episode, as well as other information helpful to understanding each week's topic. I know some podcasters put their transcripts and extras behind a paywall, but I really want to make my materials available to as many people as possible, so everything is free and still remains ad-free as well. So please make use of it and tell your friends. This week's episode looks at the beginning of the American effort to make Canada part of the rebellion. We will get into the rest of the campaign, including the attempted invasion of Quebec, in a few weeks. 
Since the Canadian invasion was ultimately unsuccessful and Canada remains British, the effort does not get as much attention in the history books. Many patriots, though, thought they would get all of North America to join the effort if they got an army in there to have the locals rally around. This was the attempt to make that happen. I also tried to squeeze in a great deal of subject matter into this episode, which means that some really interesting details might not have made the final cut. There was really an interesting story about British General Carleton's escape from American capture. He had to slip past enemy ships at night, and on several occasions had to get past soldiers by pretending to be a French-Canadian who did not speak English. I really debated making that into a whole episode for itself, but in the end decided that if we're ever going to get to 1776, I've got to avoid even more detours. If you want to read more about it, though, this week's book recommendation will meet your needs. My recommendation this week is called Thrust for Canada by Robert McConnell Hatch. The book covers the fight for Canada from this invasion in 1775 through the Battle of Quebec and ending with the Battle of Valcour Island, which comes about a year after the start of this action. It is a great story full of adventure, and one that is relatively unknown to many people, even those who are familiar with other parts of the Revolutionary War. The author, Hatch, was actually an Episcopal bishop in New England for many years. He passed away about a decade ago. He published this book in 1979, and also published another interesting book about Major John Andre, who I also mentioned in this episode when he was still a lieutenant. The book Thrust for Canada is almost 250 pages, plus endnotes and index. Last week, I gave a rather half-hearted recommendation to a book about the Bermuda Raid, because it was really the only book I could find that covered that topic. Like last week, this book, Thrust for Canada, covers a topic that most other books avoid, at least in any focused way. However, unlike last week's book, I'm not hedging on my recommendation this week. I think this one is a really great read, very well researched, and covers the topic very well. If you are interested in Canada's role in the early revolution, this book is something you will want to read. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.